Bless you so much. We uh, we have been in a series on revival, and uh, you know, I just want to give a a couple of uh, disclaimers while my brother Mark comes. I asked Mark Houseneck to come and join me, and uh, and it's because he pastored in New York. He's a good friend, a Pentecostal preacher, and a pastor in every right. Him and Cindy, would you help me appreciate him and welcome them? God bless you, Cindy and Mark. God bless you. They're going to bring our chairs over here. Let's make rooms. I got to warn you, I got to do a couple of disclaimers. One of them is we got 43 slides and two preachers. So if you brought your uh, picnic basket, hopefully, or I don't know, but online, we hope that you can see the PowerPoint. Uh, Drop that just a little bit. Yeah, he definitely needs a microphone. Definitely. I, I am not that tall. Mark, you can adjust your seat. Could you adjust it? Because I don't have a clue. This is t- too much technology for me. Jump. jump. Listen, if y'all jump, I'll jump. But the way y'all going today, I ain't jumping. Now. I ain't jumping. You ain't jumping. Thank you, brother. So so basically, I've been in this series, and Pastor Mark and I were talking and had lunch, and I said, man, you've done so much study in, in the revival, history of revivals, and he has. He preached a series that lasted quite some time, 15 weeks. 15 weeks. 15 weeks. Check it out and see if that's working testing okay and uh and he's such an incredible uh friend and we just thought you know i could do this by myself or i could get somebody who's got some more details about it hopefully online y'all can see the powerpoint all of y'all can see the powerpoint now the devil is a liar he broke my little clicker just before service but can you help me appreciate sandy come on heisterman she's going to help us today she's going to help us today thank you sandy uh we're making history for sure and I just want to give uh, 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 Mark a chance to pray for us today, and we'll get right on into it. And speaking of history, today is the anniversary of D-Day. That's right. Crank him up a little bit, Pastor. June the 6th. So. Amen. So let's pray. Dearly Father, we thank you, God, for this wonderful day of giving us, Lord. As we recall, Lord, the, the anniversary of D-Day, uh, when the forces of righteousness uh, attacked the forces of evil and overwhelmed them. By the grace of God. Lord, today it's fitting that we also look at the history of the church and revival and how the church was ordained to be that force of righteousness in this dark world. Yes, God. To be a light, to be uh, the salt. Lord God, we just pray in Jesus' name that as we begin to scratch the surface, just begin to, to whet the appetite of the saints. In regards to the revivals of old, I pray, God, we would cry out like Habakkuk. Lord God, renew them in our day. It's enough uh, history. We want to see it. We don't want to just hear it. We want to behold it and partake of it in our time, for our lives, for our children, for our children's children. God, we just pray for a third great awakening to sweep through uh, this church, through the assemblies of God, and through America. And one more time, God, we just pray for revival for this country. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Last week you heard me tell you, or two weeks ago, because we had an evangelist who came in and uh, met with us last week, Jason Stidham. And we need to make room for the gifts of the church. An evangelist is one of them, and he called me, and we gave him time, and he took us further into preparing ourselves for what God is about to do. Disclaimer, we don't claim to know everything about all of history. Uh, I tell you up front, Pastor Mark has studied longer than I, and uh, in Bible school seminary, they maybe touched little tidbits and points, but they never really got into detail. If that's true for the preacher, how many know it's true for the saints on many occasions? And so I hope, how many is excited about this day? How many is glad you're here and you want to learn? How many got your pens and papers and you're ready to take notes? There you go. There's a few of you. Okay. The rest of you, I hope you have a, a memory like an elephant. But uh, pastor's not, if you're not sitting down, I'm not either. And if you tag me, I'll go. Don't you tag me because I'm, worried about, I'm about as piped and hyped as I can possibly be. The wheels are, are going to be a problem. Whew. So pastor and I just started uh, talking and talking. So Sandy, we want to start off with scripture and... Uh, and before you before you do anything else, I'll do the first one, Pastor. You can do the second one. Second Chronicles seven fourteen. If you know it, say it with me. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. We do four things. God does three. We humble ourselves and pray and 
seek his face and turn from our wicked ways, he will hear. He will, he will open up the heavens over our heads. He will forgive our sins and cleanse us and uh, he will heal our land. How many believe that promise from the Lord? So with every promise, there's conditions, and I don't have time to get into that. I do want to say we're not so much chasing after revival as we are chasing after Jesus. So all through the the history of the Bible and even the church age, we have seen ups and downs, movings of the Spirit throughout the ages. And so we just want to uh, set a, a, a preface to this whole day by saying, we believe God's going to do it again, but we have to do our part, and he'll do his. Pastor, you can take. Psalm 119. Psalm 119, verse 126 says, It is time for thee, Lord, to work, for they have made void of thy law. And we, we're living in those times when the law of the Lord is now scorned and, and mocked and sneered, and the wicked have just been uh, running amok, but the, the psalmist said, It's time. Mm-hmm. God, it's time. It's high time for the Lord to get to work, and that work is revival. Pastor, thank you, and uh, and and we believe it's it's uh, something that our Simmons of God is focused on. Doug Clay has made three uh, parts of his vision for our future. One is is Bible engagement. He wants to restore the Word of God in the house of the Lord. I said, how many know we need the Word of God to be restored in the house of the Lord with God's people? It starts with us. Number two, power. Um, um, empowerment, spirit empowerment. We need the Holy Spirit to empower us to do the work of God, and then thirdly, um, missions engagement, uh, global missions and home missions around the world. So so we believe that God has set up the Assemblies of God. He did it 105 years ago. I don't know how old we are now, 105 years, 1915, 1914. So there's no way Pastor Mark and I are going to be able to do all the way through the Pentecost of 1901 or 1915, whenever we became a fellowship. We're going to have to do that in another series. We want to start today though, with church history coming from England and the movement of God overseas. So, Sandy, if you would just follow, help us, uh, the awakening defined. Pastor, tell us the difference between awakening, a wave of the Spirit, and outpouring of the Spirit. So an outpouring or a wave or a revival, they typically historically have proved to be more localized and short-lived, short-term. We saw the most recent one we have seen is Brownsville, for example. Mm-hmm. It's a short-lived seasonal blessing of God on his people. An awakening, in particularly a great awakening, rather, is a na- has nationwide impact, yes. even to the point of moving across oceans and bridging over large uh, uh, physical expanses and touching whole continents for Jesus Christ. An awakening has a generational impact that will last for decades, even for centuries. Yes. America still has some of the ripple effects of the, the two great awakenings still working in our country today. Amen. Thank you, Pastor. And we wanted to give you a precursor to the great awakening in America. So, Sandy, if you would advance for us, revival in church history is what we're talking about today. See a little bit of American history going on at the same time. So what was happening before the great awakening over in England and America? That's the question we want to start with. Next slide, please. Let's go there, Pastor. Start with the Renaissance uh, Renaissance and the Reformation. So the Renaissance and the end of that being a modernity and we're coming into uh, uh, gaining knowledge and people are starting to uh, have schools of thought and intellect and reason. It's big, big in the day. It's coming back. And so uh, Catholicism was big part of things. No, if you go way back in church history, uh, the church is 2000 years old. We don't have time to go all that way back, but only 60 years after Jesus's resurrection, uh, John on the Isle of Patmos is writing and he's writing to seven churches in Asia Minor, one of them called Laodicea. And he's saying to them, you nauseate me. 60, 70, less than a hundred years after the resurrection, the church nauseates the Lord. Can I get an amen in here? Or an oh me, whichever you want. It doesn't take long for darkness to prevail over, over God's people's eyes. Scales come on their eyes and they need an awakening. Right? And so, so 500 years ago, tell us about 
uh, Zwingli, Luther, and Calvin. Pastor, go ahead. Right. As you recall, the Dark Ages and the Inquisitions and all those things had taken place, and people like John Huss and uh, Wycliffe and some of these other ones that started bringing the Word of God around, that's what brought on the Reformation, the, the Renaissance, and those sort of things. Huldrych Zwingli was a revivalist in Switzerland. And then, of course, we all, we all have heard of Martin Luther. Absolutely. Uh, he began the Protestant Reformation. We nailed the 95 Theses to the Wittenberg University front door. Um, and, of course, he began that whole, uh, the Lutherans came from him, of course. And then John Calvin was also uh, in that, uh, the peers of that uh, group here. And, and Catholicism, as it was, was starting to do... Um Things like uh, asking for money for for different indulgences and uh, for prayers and for little uh, relics. They would sell little relics. And so what Martin Luther did is he began to, uh, the 95 thesis is 95 things he saw wrong with the Catholic Church, basically, is what that is. Some scholars say he nailed it. Some say he mailed it. How many know that's irrelevant? Uh, still true that he's saying this is not right. This is the theology has gone or amok. And so he starts a reformation uh, 500 years ago. 500 years ago seems long, folks, but it's not very long. Today's sermon will go longer than 500 years ago. You didn't get it. I was trying to wake you up. John Calvin then. So Lutherans came into play. How many ex-Lutherans? Let me see hand if you were a Lutheran at one time. I know there's one. There's two. Just two. Praise. How many ex-Catholics do we have in here? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Take no jive. Amen. All right. Okay. All right. So, so you can see that, uh, denominationally, Pastor, or church-wide, we are evolving kind of like, uh, we're learning more maybe, and we're becoming into a light and understanding, and things are happening. So we're moving on into John Calvin. Tell us a little bit about him. Yeah. And so with, you know, we've all heard of Calvinism and things like eternal security, once saved, always saved. What was interesting, if you go back and look at the, the reason why that came out is that the papacy in those days would, if you did not uh, sign on to the various indulgences and engage in the mass and different things, if you did not do what the Pope said, he had the ability, he was considered part of the Godhead, basically, he could erase your name out of the book of life. So the teaching of Calvin was, once you're saved, no man's removing your name from the book of life. And that's where the, of course, you stretch that out a little bit and you get as we typically do, the pendulum overswung. Instead of staying balanced, you know, blessed are the balance. Yes. It swung too far. Now it's once saved, always saved, even if you live like 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 a heathen. But yes. that's not what Mr. Calvin intended. Not at all what John Calvin in, uh, intended, but we always seem to do that. And as Mark and I began to dialogue together about all these uh, different uh, uh, epochs of time or facets of, of changing of the guards here, we began to see that one, uh, one would be a, a reaction to the other. So Luther's reacting to the extreme Catholicism or the state church. So that we're not the state church anymore. They believe the church membership should be uh, voluntary and limited to those who are saved, those who are, have a common conversion. We need to see a transformation. We're not going to heaven just because we're part of the church. Can somebody say amen to that? So that's where Lutheran came from. And then, then Calvin's taking it a little bit further. And then there was Arminius, this guy, who was uh, the other ex- extreme of that or trying to balance that out. Tell us a little bit. Now, about the, Ar- the Armenian, uh, the, the group of people called the Armenians took the exact opposite tack as the Calvinists was, was very much, you know, you got to live out your salvation every single day. They're, they're getting saved every day. Again, the pendulum swinging too far to where it's like, oh, no, you can lose. Your, if I have one bad thought, I can lose my salvation. So, again, Jesus just wants us to, to be balanced. It, it is not a salvation of works like, like the, the Catholics had taught and, and Lutheran said, hey, it's a, sal- it's, a, it's a salvation by faith through grace. And then, no, your name can't be erased. You are eternally secure. And no, we do have to live holy, and we're, but your salvation is not hanging by a spider's web, by spider's thread. Yeah. Um, instead, we are very secure and we are in a relationship with Christ, so we have no fear. So if, if you take the, the nuggets of truth from each school, you re- begin to realize that we're starting to see something come into shape that we now know as modern theology. Absolutely. In the Renaissance, we have uh, the Gutenberg 
press in Germany yep. was the beginning of something for people to get the word of God printed in their own language. Very so important. in Catholicism, clergy was elevated and laity was, um, I don't know, deflated. Basically, you just do what I tell you, you dumb little sheep. I mean, no, that's not God's will. God's will need to be educated in the word. They need to be biblically literate where they can understand that rightly divide the word of God for themselves. So Luther was actually Catholic. He was actually part of the priesthood. And so I want you to see that nobody's rebelling. There's no kicking or screaming or revolt. There's an evolving into what's happening. Yes. Let's, let's go to the next slide, please, sister. The state of the church in England. Uh, let's talk about the pilgrims a little bit. This history lesson. We might get to the 4th of July and just have a Holy Ghost fit, but we're getting you ready. Are y'all getting any of this so far? Okay. All right. John Bunyan, he came before the pilgrims. Yes. And so tell us a little bit about John Bunyan. So the the Church of England, so after the Reformation, the Church of England breaks away from the the church, uh, the Roman Catholic Church. And, of course, that's where we get our King James Bible, um, all that. But it didn't take long for the church to become lukewarm again. It It doesn't take long at all. So uh, it was ruled by the House of Bishops. It answered to the King and Queen of England, and thus became very, very political, uh, very manipulated by the by the different politicians of the day that served the monarchy more than it served the King of Kings. And one of the things that uh, John Bunyan and the the Pilgrims and the Puritans faced, I have a little excerpt here. How many have ever read uh, this book here, The Light and the Glory? Uh, Raise your hand. Read, Peter read the Marshall, light and the David Manuel. Two people, three. This here should be taught Four. in every Bible school in the country uh, because it is the godly heritage, the godly birthing of the United States. America, the pilgrims were, were some of the first revival seekers ever, and they came to America because they were seeking revival. So, Tell us the difference between pilgrim and a Puritan because you told me that. And I thought it was pretty interesting. Yes. Puritan would be straight-laced, yes. all, all bow-tied up and looking, you know. I have always thought the pilgrims were there with pretty little hats and eating their turkey. There wasn't even any turkey to eat. So we, we have a lot of history we believe that's not even it's not even real. We just kind of just go with whatever they say. So there were two, two schools of thought that saw that the Church of England needed revival. There were the Puritans. They thought that if I in my family we personally get revived ourselves, we will be like a shining light in a backslidden church, and the rest of the church will want to be purified like us, the Puritans. But there was another group they were considered very radical. They would be like the Pentecostals. They'd be the, the Charismatics because they were very vocal, and they were very outspoken about the church was so far gone that you had to come out and be ye separate. So um, they were soon ostracized, put out of the church, and they eventually fled because they were persecuted. And this is the persecution that led to John Bunyan uh, and Pilgrim's Progress. And these separatists eventually went to Holland where they became known as the Pilgrims because they came to the United States. And um, as I said, they were revival seekers. They felt the yes. only safe place to find revival was in the new promised land. And they came in on the Mayflower, right? Heading toward Virginia, Miss Virginia hit uh, Plymouth Harbor somewhere over there. Uh, I found out even just studying myself, there was no Plymouth Rock. I was like, how disappointing. <laughs> Go figure it out yourself. I haven't been on the East Coast a whole lot. But you're, you're from the East Coast. I've seen it. And he's yeah. from New York. And so he, he's got a lot of insight here. But I just wanted to say, they parked the Mayflower out, took a little uh, boat mm-hmm. and came to the land, did all of their uh, planting and renewing and the Indians were here and, and all of that. And, you know, we go into Thanksgiving. We don't have time to get into all that history of America. But but it was 150 years, Pastor, before we became the United States of America. Right. How many thought that much time went by before the pilgrims landed and we became a nation? You see that? So we want to put the timeline in order for you to understand what was going on. They came to America. Right. And um, you want to move on forward? Or you had something to read? Oh, well, that's good. It? Okay, go ahead. According to one historian, in the early days, the colonies became the most Protestant and Reformed and Puritan commonwealth in the entire world. But throughout the 1600s, the spiritual and moral decline or condition of the colonies declined at an an alarming rate. And how many know when things get dark, God starts to move? And that's why we want to help you. It's up, it's down. It's up, it's down. And how many know right, right now in America the condition is we need revival? 
Next slide, please. So two major cultural movements further strengthened the American colonists' connection uh, to the Great Britain, and where it's all coming from, Europe, okay? And so the Great Awakening and the Enlightenment. One more slide there, please. Uh, the Enlightenment was the age of reason. We said that earlier. Everybody's thinkers, and the it was an intellectual, cultural movement in the 18th century that emphasized reason over superstition and science over blind faith. We got educated. Okay, next slide. Enlightenment thinkers like uh, John Locke, uh, Isaac Newton, and Voltaire questioned accepted knowledge and spread new ideas about openness, investigation, and religious tolerance. Have you ever heard that anywhere before? Tolerance throughout Europe and the Americas. Next slide, please. Both movements began in Europe, uh, but they advocated very different ideas. The Great Awakening pr promoted a fervent, on-fire, emotional, religious experience, right? While the Enlightenment encouraged the pursuit of reason in all things on both sides of the Atlantic Ocean, British subjects grappled with these two new ideas. So that's where we are. Before the Great Awakening, we just gave you a little intro, basic. Next slide, uh, the Great Awakening. So one of the things you'll find, whether you study scripture or you look at history, you'll find that prayer lays the foundation yes. for every great move. What, I mean, it was, it was the apostles in the upper room that were all together in one accord and, and in prayer when the Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost. Yes. What's interesting with the first, the first awakening, the first great awakening, is in there's a fellow by the name of Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. Next slide. That name just kind of rolls right off your tongue, doesn't it? Yeah, oh, yeah. Zinzendorf. Next slide. We're going to get to Zinzendorf. The 1730 to 1770s, God raises up leaders. Let's go to Zinzendorf. Count Nicholas von Zinzendorf. So what was interesting with him is he was a Moravian in Germany, and he had such a, a burden for bringing prayer back in, into the church and praying for revival that he started a, a community of believers who agreed to pray. And they, they, they basically, amongst themselves, decided we're going to have 24 hours a day, seven days a week of prayer for revival. And that wow. prayer meeting went on for over 100 years before it stopped. Wow. 100 years of a prayer meeting for revival. And you'll see, as we look at the timelines, they actually span both the first and second great awakenings. Both, both, both first and second Great Awakening, which kind of coincide, just kind of flow together. But one of the things about the Moravians, because we didn't spend a lot of time. Folks, we can't spend time on every group, but we just want to hit it. The Moravians not only were big in prayer, but they were big missions movement came out of the Moravians. And it's Mission Sunday, so I wanted, I wanted to give to Old Grove the idea, Pastor Mark, that, that when you get into the Holy Spirit and the presence of the Lord and genuine encounters with God, revival services, whatever that means, uh, encountering God, right, in His presence, it, the results are missionary endeavors. So we're gonna get into the Great Awakening, which is going to introduce that, uh, uh, salvation by faith, solo scriptura. You know, I understand Luther was trying to get that. We're going there, trying to get out of uh, religiosity into a relationship, okay? But then the second great awakening, you'll see as we pull this out, is a furthering of the first great awakening, which is let's get a heart right. Don't let God judge you and damn you to hell. Let's get right with God. The second one is now that we're right with God, am I right, Mark? Just kind of let's do something about it. Let's do the mission of God. Let's get our heart right. Let's start uh, ministry. Let's do things for the kingdom and the church. So that's the two ways it goes. Let's catch uh, this uh, Fringle. What is his name? Uh, you're German? Are you German? Yes, sir. Okay, say it again. You know, it sound beautiful. Frillenhausen. Uh, he was in there as well. And then let's take a, a little break from the Lutherans. Go to the uh, Methodists with uh, with John and Charles Wesley. Who are those guys? So John Wesley, uh, one of the things, they got, they got the term Methodist because they were very methodical in their devotion to the Lord. He was very methodical. Every, every He woke up the same time every day. His devotions were all the same time. And so typically he was someone who said, you have to be intentional about your walk with the Lord. It's not just something you do on a Sunday. You don't just go and say your, you'll pay your alms and say your prayers and then you go live like the devil Monday through Saturday. He's like, you have to be very intentional. And knowing that we get busy, knowing that human nature is what it is, he said, if you're not intentional, methodical with how you live your Christian walk, it gets away from you. 
It, and that's just in a nutshell. He was a super prolific uh, uh, preacher. He he wrote over I think 233 books. He wrote. He he preached that there was a 25 or 30,000 sermons in his lifetime. And rode I, how many countless miles, miles on, on horseback. horseback, right? The circuit riders. You heard of the circuit riders. His brother Charles. Now he was in the music and worship business. Yes. And I was going to ask you, Pastor. I don't want to spend a lot of time, but I do want to let the old Grove family know that music and worship and music had a major play. Yes. In fact, before we even came to the Americas, uh, there were times where people would be in fields like ten thousand strong uh, and just singing the hymns of the Church yes. of England, and then and then God would just move, praying and singing, sometimes no preaching at all. God's people were hungry. Can somebody shout hungry? Now, I know you're getting hungry, but it's only 11 o'clock. We're talking about spiritual hunger for God, and that is what was creeping in. Then Jonathan Edwards, next slide, and George Whitfield. Let's check these guys out. The first great awakening, these are the leaders. Ministers started emphasizing emptying ourselves, as Mark mentioned, of material goods and comforts and the corruption of the human nature. And they uh, they warned, if you don't repent, God will show you his fury. The famous sermon by Edwards, uh, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. You remember that? And they started founding these universities to train preachers. You know, Bryce, I'm thankful. I know we shut down CBC, but how many know it's time to open up some things? That's what happens in revival. People get called like my young nephew, and we need to start raising up institutions. So revival and the start of education and training institutions. Harvard started, Pastor, and Yale, and Dartmouth, and Princeton, and Brown. And tell me why they started. All these institutions. So one of the first things they realized that they saw salvation and people getting saved was so many did not did not read or they didn't have education. Like, well, when they needed to learn about this Christian faith. They wanted to raise up pastors, preachers, missionaries. So they they said, well, it's only it's only natural. Let's start these schools of higher education so we can raise up ministers, missionaries, and people will take the gospel out into the world. Because remember, in, in the early days of New England, the, the textbook of every school was the Bible. It was the Bible, but they had, the school system had already gotten away from it. So now, like, let's get back into this. Let's go back to it. Yes. So. And so God's calling people out of these meetings with these uh, leaders that God is raising up, namely Jonathan Edwards, George Whitfield, Wesley's, you know, and Charles is doing the hymns, hundreds and hundreds of hymns that Charles Wesley wrote that we sing even today. Uh, Next slide, please. About 1742, a debate over the Great Awakening had divided the New England ministry uh, and many colonists into two factions, preachers and followers who embraced the new ideas brought forth by, uh, by the Great Awakening became uh, distinguished as new lights, okay, new lights. Somebody shout new lights. And those who affirmed uh, the old-fashioned traditional church ways were designated as old lights. Somebody say old lights. Now, this is not determined by your age. How many feel like old lights? How many feel like new lights? I feel like a middle-aged light. I'm trying to tell you that these two schools of thought happened. It's much like what we see happening today. Let's get rid of uh, traditional things, you know, and let's just... uh, And they were speaking, great orators, great orators, great preachers, but they were very old, uh, monotone, uh, intellectual, sometimes even... You said even Jonathan Edwards, we'll talk about him in a minute, but he read... His text right yes. with his uh, yeah, book he, in his face. So yeah, he was tell myopic, he was legally blind, and he could barely speak, hardly above a whisper. Say that again. He was myopic and legally blind. Yes, but what we what we would now call legally blind. And when he read that sermon, sit back in those days, everyone read their sermon. So he read the sinners in the hands of the name of God, literally almost just past the end of his nose, so he could see it. And when he got done reading each, the final page, he brought it down. Basically, the whole place was had had already melted into crying out for salvation because they some of them were shrieking that they held on to the pillars that held the church up, saying, "I'm sliding into hell. Please save me." I mean, no, that's called revival. That's the power of God. That's where the power of God comes, and the people's conviction comes, and people without even a, a demonstrative preacher. So I'm not trying to grab one or the other one. I'm just telling you the two factions. Next slide, please. 
old lights versus new lights. Not everyone welcomed the belief of the Great Awakening. One of the principal opinions uh, of the op- opponents was Charles Chauncey, a minister in Boston. And Chauncey was especially critical of Whitfield's preaching uh, because he was the demonstrative one. We'll get to Whitfield in a minute, man. He was cross-sided and wild. I'm not trying to make fun of people's eyes are cross-sided. I'm just telling them that's what he was. I'm saying God uses cross-sided wild people. And thank God. So he criti- criticized Whitfield's preaching and, list, uh, and instead supported a more traditional formal style of religion. Now, Benjamin Franklin, how many ever heard of him? He was friends. He liked Whitfield's style of preaching. It was very demonstrative, uh, very theatrical. I mean, uh, he just, not like Jonathan Edwards who would read like that. He would come out and he would be just all kind of wild. Tell I us have a, I have a, a statement here from Benjamin Franklin regarding, please. Oh, please regarding yeah. George Whitfield. And this is what uh, Benjamin Franklin said uh, when Whitfield on his second visit to Philadelphia. And this is what he said. The multitudes of all sects and denominations that attended his sermons were enormous. It was wonderful to see the change so soon made in the manners of the inhabitants. From being thoughtless and indifferent about religion, it seemed as if all the world was growing religious. One could not walk through a town in an evening without hearing psalms sung in different families in every street. Wow. Benjamin Franklin, one of our forefathers. So we're getting closer. Next next, um, slide, please. Uh, so we wanted to give you a little bit of date, timeline, and a little bit of logistics where this is happening at. And First Awakening started in 1730 through the 1750s, and they go one into the other. But the second one was 1800s through the 1840s. The first was in the northeast of America, New England, obviously, states in New York. Second in the south and the west. The first was spontaneous groups. It wasn't methodically planned out revivals but just groups just began to come as they got hungry and and wanted to hear these people as benjamin franklin did not have an encounter with god with whitfield just thought he was a a, a very great preacher right. and liked his style and so and, so, so plan revivals was the second great way before we leave off of george whitfield a lot of historians credit him with bringing the spiritual unity of the colonies together and where they began to, the colonists began to see themselves. Remember, we're still British subjects at this right, point. Absolutely. They began to see themselves as number one, as a new nation and a one nation under God. And that they began to see themselves as a Christian nation, unique as the Church of England continued to drift away into lukewarmness and staleness and deadness. There was this new revivalism and George Whitfield, again, he was a charismatic firebrand of of an evangelist that just brought thousands of people out uh, from the countryside to hear and just, just wonderful conversions and transformations. It really, we were truly a Christian nation. Absolutely. And one of the things that uh, was different is prior to that, only the intellectual or the wealthy had access to the Bible or to the word of God or to meetings such as that church. There was some that were unwelcome or unwanted or didn't feel welcome or wanted. But when Whitfield went into the fields such as that, other different peoples of color and peoples of different race and people of different uh, poverty, socioeconomic status, we felt welcome to go from Benjamin Franklin to, you know, who was wealthy to others who may not have been so wealthy. So next slide. So these three guys were the most famous. Then there's John, John, uh, uh, Wesley, uh, George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards. Next slide, please. And those are there. And so there's the sinners in the hands of an angry God sermon with Jonathan Edwards. And we want to spend a little time with him. Is everybody okay so far? We still got time. Let's go to the next slide, please. Jonathan Edwards was a brilliant young man, and at six years old, he studied Latin. It doesn't impress you. I was a little bit impressed. Uh, I can't hardly speak English, but I'm very good at Spanish, and all of you know that. (laughs) Uh, He entered Yale University. Remember, that was uh, Yale was started for for training of ministers. He was 13, Bryce, when he entered Yale University. He graduated Yale at 15 years old. He was ordained at 19. He taught at Yale at 20 years old and later became the president of Princeton. Either he did or his grandson wasn't sure about that, but uh, he, it was it was pushed down to another generation. Uh, he graduated Harvard uh, with a bachelor's and a master's degree on the same day. Very smart man. Next slide, please. Uh, there he is preaching to the congregants that come into the open field, Jonathan Edwards, gathering out in the woods. Next slide, please. Uh, George Whitfield. See how he's cross-sided? 
I just think that's so awesome. I don't know why. Uh, <laughs> congregation, he's looking. He's looking at you. <laughs> you can't get away. I got you. I see you. Right eye. I see you with that eye. Next slide, please. George Whitfield. He was a British minister who came to America in 1738. He began a series of revivals in Georgia and Virginia. So Georgia was a new colony. Uh, as it was becoming, and so the church of, or the, or the English, the king, began to give them, uh, money to get, start a new colony down in Georgia. And he gave, uh, 50 acres to each of the people that would go to Georgia to start up this colony. And, uh, many of them, that's where, uh, slavery became an issue because many of them used them to do the farming and, uh, start all that. But in the preaching of these guys, they, they were abolitionists. They were totally against that. I'll let Mark speak to that. But they drew crowds of thousands and inspired many to join this new evangelical movement. Speak to the feeling there of different people coming in and the abolition. So abolition. one of the things is we, we don't really see this become the center point to the second great awakening, but you begin to see that these preachers are really beginning to hammer away at slavery and calling it sin. And basically you begin to hear them saying things like America can't be blessed as long as the scourge of slavery persists yeah. within its, within its borders. And that began to, you begin to see a separation, if you will, uh, of people who were like, hey, I want to live my Christian life, but leave my, leave, they don't, they don't want to do a practical holiness where they actually lived what they believed. On Sunday around the other Christians, I believe this, but on my farm, on my plantation, we live a different way. Mm. And you'll see during the second great awakening, and that's the one thing, the first great awakening really touched on salvation by faith, not of works. But it's the second great awakening where it's like, okay, now we put feet to our faith and actually live it out, not only in the four walls of my house and my church, but in my city and in my state and in my country, we, in our a place of business, we make Christian principle uh, uh, our livelihood. And this yeah. is how we live every day. We're going to reform our colonies. We're going to help the poor. And we're going to have Salvation Army. We're going to get to that in a little bit, William Booth and his wife and others. So, so, so now we're going to have entities where we can actually put our, our ministry out there and practice. Next slide, please. Uh, there he is preaching, George Whitfield. He sees you everywhere you are. Next slide. Uh, there he is uh, in the middle there, uh, preaching to people in the square. Next slide, please. Uh, now, the second great awakening, Pastor. I don't know if we've covered a whole lot of what you wanted to in oh, the that's first. Fine. That's okay. Good. That, that's uh, uh, do you want to stop? Okay. Yes, ma'am. This is still the liturgical kind of very feel so. of the minister. Uh, yeah. I, it's very I was, liturgical. Very liturgical. Still, we're coming out of a liturgical church. We're coming out of an Anglican, Catholic, uh, Lutheran feel. Uh, Presbyterians were big. Uh, yes. Uh, Baptists are coming. Uh, I said the Baptists are coming. <laughs> they felt like you got to get baptized. After you get saved, you should get baptized, yep. right? Yep. Follow the Lord in obedience. So that's coming as a second great awakening because now we got to put our feet yep. with our faith. So I don't know. Uh, today they're wearing short pants and holy jeans. How about them? Skinny jeans. So God bless America for that. I don't want to go to that. But uh, the second great awakening started in about the end of, the, of 1780 to 1820. Next slide, please. Uh, the first great awakening, Wesley's, Winfield, and Edwards. The second great awakening, men like Charles Finney, a 29-year-old lawyer. I mean, no, that's revival when you get a lawyer saved. Glory to God. It's the only amen we got. How about that? So next slide. Uh, revival and prayer movements, the Haystackers. Can you mention them real quickly, oh, Pastor? Or? I did not study as much on the Haystackers. Okay. One to you. Well, these five guys uh, were are going to talk about uh, uh, starting a mission for God. They got under a haystack uh, because the storm came. Uh, basically, this is the, the nuts and bolts. They got under a haystack to find shelter. Under that haystack, these five students began to pray and talk about worldwide missions and uh, turned into a massive revival on the, in the fields and a massive missionary movement uh william carey the father of uh of the modern missionary movement you can get an autobiography or, or something like that a biography of william carey's life he took the gospel uh the father of modern missions took the gospel to india all right hudson taylor 
He went to, to Tibet, uh, to places like that. You know, all these different missionary movements began to, uh, start up from the haystackers. The businessmen's prayer meeting, you did study a little of that. So the businessmen's prayer meetings, it, it was called the prayer revival of 1857. Basically, uh, a business, businessman in New York City by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere got saved, uh, at Finney's Tabernacle in New York City. And, um, he had such a burden for, there's so much sin and wickedness in New York City. We're talking 1857. His heart was so burdened for the loss that he quit his job on the spot and dedicated himself to becoming a street preacher. Well, he, he said, well, we've got to have some prayer. So he started a prayer meeting at a Dutch Reformed church on Fulton Street in New York City. And at the first prayer meeting, only six other people joined him. But within six months, God so moved in that prayer meeting that within six months, they had over 10,000 businessmen who would daily pray for the souls of people in New York City. Prayer is the seedbed of revival. Just uh, had Pastor Rick DeBose speak with us ministers on Thursday, and he said there's some things coming down the down the pipe in the assemblies of God. One of them is an urgency for us to get back to prayer. Aren't you excited about that? And that there's some talk about the Radiant uh, Bookstore that's now vacant becoming a world prayer center so that people from around the world can come uh, and pray. And there'll be a big world map on the floor. You can go right there to Springfield, Missouri, stand on your city and pray in the glory of God. Amen. So we're believing that God is going to set us up for prayer in the movement. Uh, I just wanted to put that in there. The, the uh, result of missions and prayer is a result of, of, mission, of revivals, uh, moving of the spirit. Next slide, please. Uh, Charles Finney that you were mentioning. Next slide. Uh, he said this, and I, I know it's a lot there, but the Holy Spirit, he said, his experience seemed to go through me, body and soul. He later wrote, I could feel the impression like a wave of electricity going through. Indeed, it seemed um, to come in waves of liquid love, for I could, uh, could not express it in any other way. The next morning, Finney returned to his law firm, his office, and, and he was meeting with a, cl- a client whose case he was about to uh, try, you know, argue. And he said, I have a retainer from the Lord Jesus Christ himself to plead his cause. That's what he told the man. He said, and I cannot plead yours. Come on, somebody shout amen to that. I knew Miss Melissa would love that. She's a paralegal. In other words, he dropped his uh, law law office and his law proceedings in his career. You know what? There's a difference between a career and a call. He had a career. Now has God calling him. Next slide, please. Uh, And so he began the new career of a man who would become the leading revivalist in the 19th century. He preached inside the burned over district, as uh, Mark was telling you about, in New York, born in Connecticut, and he was raised in New York. So the burned over district because uh, the fires of revival would sweep over the areas where he preached. Yeah, his revivals, uh, I used to live not far, and I've been to the cities, Rome, New York, Utica, New York, Rochester, and some of his revivals were accompanied with such wonderful manifestations and the power of God, people would enter into, uh, like, Rome. As soon as they walk across the city limits, they would fall under the power. Wow. These are these are people who don't, they're not Pentecostal by nature. They're not, many of them were not even saved, but the power of God was so intense. And they would, they would gather themselves, get back on their horses, back in their wagons, and just try to find the nearest church where they could go get saved. Um, just, uh, his, his brother-in-law had a factory, uh, owned a, a factory that made shirts and other uh, coats. And when revival hit, uh, the people, when Finney walked into the factory, one by one, each seamstress and, and person sewing and, and, and doing the fabric fell out under the power and got saved. Wow. Power and presence of the Lord. That sounds like an apostolic anointing as the Lord was with Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter as God would select and choose these people. Next slide, Pete. Uh, we're going to keep going forward. Second Great Awakening. Let's, let's look at this out in the woods down in Kentucky. Finney preached a lot in the south and in the woods. He'd make these little makeshift shacks with a pulpit, okay? And you see his hands very demonstrative in his preaching. Very uh, but before he got... Uh, to preaching, he had an encounter at one of these. Tell us about that encounter at Finney's so, encounter with so God. So the first one, if you, I think it's the next, it's the next, next slide. slide, please. We, we, we see that there's a, a revival breaks out at the Red River in Kentucky in eight, in June of 1800. 
And we're talking, we've got to remember this is 1800. It's very primitive. I mean, it's very, very much the frontier and hundreds of people get saved. And from this encounter at the Red River, Daniel Boone, y'all heard of Daniel Boone, right? He was a man. Daniel Boone. And he wanted to have a similar, uh, in Bourbon County, uh, Kentucky. So he asked for a fellow by the name of Barton Stone to come preach at the Cane Ridge Meeting House. So, uh, he, he came in May of 1801 and he had the first revival meetings and several hundred people got saved. Miraculous, the power of God. So they said, let's have another one in August. So in August of 1801, they called a second revival meeting and 20,000 people showed up. Wow. Now we're talking people that are hiking through the woods, coming by horseback, coming by wagons. It staying was in tents. Staying in tents. Staying in living tents. Out and sleeping out on the stars. There you go, in Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And the power of God was so incredibly intense that it just really just... just Talk about some of the manifestations, Pastor Mark, uh, that, that were happening at the Cane Ridge. There was one. They said that uh, there was a, a couple young ladies there that had their hair done up and, and braided, and it was so long that hung down their back, that they were being moved so powerfully by the Holy Spirit that their hair, the braids cracked like a bullwhip. Woo! So that was pretty, I don't know how. <laughs> well, there was a lot of intensity going on yeah, at the Cane Ridge, Kentucky say, revivals. I would say. A lot of quaking and a lot of shaking. But the Quakers were called the Quakers because they quaked. So this is not new phenomenon. These right. are manifestations yep. when the power of God shows up. Uh, we sometimes have critics of revival that try to say we don't need all of these. Uh, the old lights would say we don't need any of these shaking and quaking. The new lights were, were producing. Yeah. So one right. of the things that Winky Prattney points out in his book, Revival, regarding the Cane Ridge, he said the American frontier was set ablaze. The Presbyterians and the Methodists immediately caught fire and the flame broke out among the Baptists in Carroll County on the Ohio River. Great personalities emerged from the awakening, men like Peter Cartwright. Charles Finney and the Methodist circuit riders. Baptist revivalism had its birth in this movement and the, and the camp meeting motif spread all over Eastern America. And this is the point that I wanted to draw out was it says the frontier was radically transformed. Instead of gambling, cursing, and vice, spirituality and genuine, genuine Christianity characterized the early westward movement. It was God's great hour. Revival stopped skepticism in its tracks and returned the helm of the country to the godly. Wow. So as we expanded westward from the frontier, they were being led by Christian pioneers because yes. of the Cane Ridge Revival. Now, we, didn't, uh, we failed to tell you uh, throughout um, uh, the Civil War, there was, there was also revival movements both mm -hmm. in the north and in the south, right. and uh, a very, very bloody war in our nation, okay? Uh, but but, uh, but th they were moving westward. Right. Even to Missouri. We're, we're right. coming to Missouri. Revival came to Missouri. Okay, go ahead, buddy. So one of the things I wanted to point out before we, I don't want to lose this no, please. key thought, is the first great awakening uh, set the spiritual tone and the spiritual character that we would need to weather the, the, our war for independence. Anything to be done in the physical must first be cemented and done, founded, and and just firmed up in your spirit. The second great awakening was very similar in that this whole thing of slavery needed to be eradicated. It needed to be wiped out. But it had to be done spiritually first. It had to be done spiritually first. And once you're, once you're changed spiritually, and this second great awakening was a practical holiness. We've already said that. If you're not changed inside first, anything outside is not going to work. If you look at the revolution that France had right after the American Revolution, they did not have a revival in France, but they did have a revolution. And we all know how bloody and terrible it was. It set their country back. I, I knew a, 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 a AG missionary by the name of Mark Brand. He was in uh, France, a missionary in France. And he told me, he said, you know, that, that revol the, the French Revolution set France back over 200 years. Religiously, academically, in the university, in leadership, everything. Whereas in America, the, the, the Great Awakening and the revolution that followed that, we actually took leaps and bounds ahead of other nations. Be and that's what God does. 
God is not here to suppress education or suppress the intelligence. He's here to elevate and lift up. Yes. But we do it in a godly, Christ-like way. And, and, and we use men like George Washington correct. and others sure. to, to lead us. All, into, John Adams, those, those were great men of God. So as we we're talking about the Second Great Awakening, this thing of slavery had been part of American culture for generations. Yes. It could only be eradicated first in the heart. And then people would be ready to bleed on a battlefield. And I wonder with a, if, we, if we're praying for a third great awakening here in America, what God is preparing us spiritually for what's coming in the natural. Yes. I, just, I can't help yes. but wonder. Oh, that's, that's huge. It's huge. And I can, I can see a, a trend happening. How many are seeing a trend? And we're coming into Pentecost. We're going to come into a holiness movement. Uh, we're not going to be able to do it today. And everybody said, Amen. They're thankful. Are y'all getting tired? Okay. Next slide, please. Uh, so, so these are those tents. They set them up. There's Finney preaching, uh, out of the box up there and people are just massive. 20,000 people are gathered. They're having all kinds of manifestations of the glory of God is yep. being poured out in Kentucky. Next slide, please. Uh, then D.L. Moody, tell us just a tidbit real quick about it. We're coming to a close. So D.L. Moody, um, came to the Lord, uh, by his Sunday school teacher, led him to the Lord. And he just felt this burden to, to win the lost. And at first it was reaching children. And eventually God led him to Chicago. And one of the things he did was he, he, he emptied his bank account and he spent all of his worldly savings on candy. So, and what he did was he went out to the streets with pocketfuls of candy and, and, a, and a pony, he bought a pony too. And he would give pony rides and candy to the kids and he would lead like this Pied Piper entourage down to the rail yards in Chicago. And he'd fill the rail cars full of these kids and preach the gospel to them. Praise the Lord. And in fact, he became such a, like a Sunday school revivalist, if you will, that then president-elect Abraham Lincoln actually attended at, you know, after he won the presidency, he came and sat in on one of Moody's Sunday school classes. He said, because I've heard so much of this man named Moody. I had I had to see for myself. He made a great impact on our nation. Who knows what institution he started? Moody Bible Institute in Chicago, training and the Pacific Garden Mission. But the Moody Bible Institute was for training. And I believe he's preaching in London there under yes. a big crowd in that London, was one of the largest, largest, largest audiences or, or congregations he ever preached to okay. during okay. the Bible there. An interesting thing, and I know we're, we're coming down, I wanted to end my part on yeah, this. Yeah, no worry. Is whenever we see a great move, there's always a spiritual climate of urgent need and desperation, and God moves in revival. And the next thing that happens is the devil almost automatically proposes a counterfeit. Absolutely. Almost always pr promotes some sort of a counterfeit move. We're talking about a practical holiness, a practical application of your Christian belief, because faith without works is dead. Feeding the poor, clothing the naked, educating the masses. That was part of the second great awakening. Setting the captives free, all those things. Well, there was another man, the devil's agent, that was also working behind the scenes to duplicate something. Throw that slide up there. And it was a fellow by the name of Karl Marx. Karl, when Moody was in England preaching one of the largest audiences ever, at that time in the history of England, there was a fellow literally a few blocks away by the name of Karl Marx. And he was already so backslid and so poisoned against the gospel, he refused to go to any of Moody's revivals. And I have something here, if you want, if you'll humor me just a moment, a little bit about why, why this is important. And tell me, are we dealing with some of, some of Karl Marx's problems? Marxism today? is the order of the day. Oh my goodness. Politics. It, it's the father of fascism. It's, it's the father of communism, socialism, every bad ism you can imagine. It, it, it's an awful thing. But Karl Marx, I want to read uh, something here about him. Um, give me just a moment here. He had a sister-in-law who was active in the evangelical uh, Lower Rhineland revival in Germany. And he had, uh, and she was also a tremendous social reformer while he was growing up. He was certainly not ignorant of Christian things. The sad thing was that Marx lost three of his own children through malnutrition during his early years in London, during the height of the Industrial Revolution. So he had lost three of his kids. 
because basically they were starving to death in the middle of all its prosperity. He blamed it on the fail. Now, this is the key thought. He blamed it on the failure of a sneaking and hypocritical Christianity to change the system. And with his friend Angles, he set out to destroy it and everything around him. He was bitter, covered in boils, and full of hate. He, as he sat in the British Museum writing Das Kapital, when Moody came to London to preach, Marx hated Christians not because he failed to see any real power to transform society, but because of his own counterfeit conversion and subsequent failure. He believed they had to be, like himself, nothing but self-deceived hypocrites. And later on, he, he became, and his, his, the people, the Marxists who followed him, became great antagonists of the Salvation Army with William Booth, William and his wife, yep. which was very instrumental, not in just uh, feeding the poor, but in preaching the gospel. Oh, big time. William Booth was a very big uh, um, proponent of helping the poor, but also of spreading the gospel. So Salvation Army you see today was not the intentional way it was. Thank God for the Salvation Army, but it's not how it started. Are you hearing me? Okay, next slide, please. Oh, boy, <laughs> Billy Sunday. Look at him. He's jumping over the pulpit. Looked like Pastor Ron almost. Used to be a baseball player. I think for the Used Cardinals. to be a baseball player for the St. Louis Cardinals. Go Cards. But he's a baseball player, and he got a touch of God yeah, on his my life. My grandmother heard him preach. Wow. Did you hear that? His grandmother heard Billy Sunday preach. Let's next slide real quick. What he said was, uh, going to church don't make you a Christian. So now he's saying, now you've gotten a comfortable place uh, just going to church, but it's not really changing your lifestyle. And so that's, the, Pastor, that's where we wanted to stop, I think. Let's see. One more slide. Let's see who it is. That's it. Let's stop right there because there's no way we can get into the Welsh revival. The Welsh revival is a whole nother uh, revival with Evan Roberts. We'll deal with that next time we meet. Would y'all like us to do this again? Yes? Okay. Okay. Well, we will. Chrissy, you and your worship team can come back. Let's open it up, Pastor, for just a minute or so for any questions or, thought, or comment uh, questions about. We threw a whole lot at you. I know it was a lot for me, and uh, and I thank you. Would you help me appreciate Pastor Mark for helping me get in here and do this? Was this something profitable for you? Did you did you like this? Did anybody learn something from this? Yes. Okay. So, so we don't always get everything in school. We don't always pay attention. I didn't always pay attention. Uh, I did in Bible school, but in, in regular history school and church, uh, I wasn't a Christian. Okay. That's all I have to say. I was somewhere else. Questions, thoughts, questions, thoughts, balcony, main floor. All right. Would you stand with us today? We, here's what we want to do. Light in the glory by um the one book is revival by winky prattney it's been out of print for quite some time but you can find it on ebay or thrift books and the one here uh is called the light and the glory these these are just biographies hudson taylor spiritual secret he's the one that had the china inland mission and uh went to uh to tibet jim elliott remember he was a missionary to ecuador and the indians speared him and uh and he was a martyr for the lord Charles Finney, you can actually get these evangelists, these revivalists, you can get them in biographies. And William Carey, the pastor, the father of modern. Yes, ma'am, please. Look at that. There's a Pentecostal church in that city in Germany where she's saying, would you give the Lord praise for that? And I know that... Uh, Yes, and Pastor uh, and Pastor uh, Heisterman and his wife and family were missionaries to Germany. And uh, Danke Shane, Mom, thank you so much. We love you and, and the work of God, and not only there, but many other places. But, um, you know, uh, Sister Sarah uh, Friddle is here. That is our children's pastor, uh, her mother. Would you welcome her today? Sarah, we're glad to have you. And, uh, and, and, and if you get a chance to meet her, you just need to hear her heart. She said she's so thrilled that her daughter can be in a church where she can learn and grow and be in ministry and be trained and to know that Oak Grove is taking care of her. Have I said it well, Sarah? We're, she's saying thank you, Oak Grove, for taking care of her baby girl. And Tammy, thank you for housing her and, and helping us get her acclimated as our children's pastor. And then Stephanie, my sister-in-law, is in the back. 
uh, and she and her husband passed her. She got saved along with Mr. Jerry, Melissa, and I all the same day, September 14th. 1982, about eight of us got saved. And uh, and so we've seen, I got saved in the latter part of the Pentecostal charismatic revival uh, of the 80s. But uh, so next time we meet, we're going to, y'all can all stand if you don't mind, please. Uh, next time we meet, we're going to talk about the 1900s. We're going to talk about the Welsh revival real quick. We're going to talk about the Azusa Street revival, the Simmons of God uh, starting up, the Pensacola revival. We're going to talk about the 50s, the Jesus movement, the 50s, uh, Oral Roberts, Billy Graham, uh, healing revivals of all of those things. We're going to talk about that next time. Are you excited? Because, listen, I think it's, I know it's a lot of information, but our goal is to have inspiration. What we really want today is we want Jesus. What we really want is we want Jesus. Would you step up? Would you step up to the altar with us this morning? Would you do that? We're hungry. We're hungry, Lord.